Good morning and welcome everyone. It's a, it's a wonderful privilege to be here and sharing with you this morning. I'm not like David going to ask you now to get up and move backward one row of seats. <laughs> be very thankful for that. But as we come before uh, God's precious word, I'm conscious of my own weakness and, and need of <clears throat> excuse me, his help. And I, I need to pray for myself. I need to pray for you. Uh, whatever your circumstances are today, I believe that God has sovereignly brought you here. He's brought you with purpose. He's brought you with intent. And he has something to say to you. He has something to speak into your heart. He has a message for you, you uh, who are his people, you perhaps who are not his people at this point. God, would, God desires today to speak to us, and I, um, I'm going to bow at a moment and, and just pray to him and seek his blessing upon his precious word. Bow with me. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can gather in this manner to worship you and to hear your precious word. Lord, as we come before you, we realise that we are a feeble folk, uh, we, but we make our, our, our home in the rock. We stand upon the rock, but the rock, and we tremble upon the rock, but the rock never trembles under us. We thank you, Lord God, for the precious truths of your word that give light and direction to our lives. And so often, Lord, we are wandering around um, as lost sheep, uh, wondering what the will of God is. So I pray you'll make it plain today, and I pray, Lord God, as I speak these words from your word, Lord, that you will pour out your Holy Spirit upon me, that you will anoint me and anoint this congregation with your Holy Spirit of promise, that he would enlighten us, that he would open our eyes to see what the Spirit says to the churches, that he will give us an understanding, that you'll captivate every thought, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And so as we open the word together, we pray you'll open our hearts and minds and pray that you'll bless us with the truth. We ask it in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. So today I'm, I'm continuing a series on 1 John chapter 2. And I had previously spoken of, um, it's on the, the signs of sonship, the certain signs of sonship. And so the, the main theme of 1 John is about the assurance of salvation. I don't know where you stand today with the Lord, but uh, it's a common, um, a common condition of Christians that they doubt and they, they still have fears even though they're safe even though God's their Father, heaven's their home, and all the promises of God are sure and amen, yet we doubt and we fear, and this is common to Christians. And so John is writing to the believers in his day, and he says to them very clearly in chapter 2 that he's not writing to them because he believes they don't know him, but because they do know him and they need to be knowing that they know him. Are you knowing that you know him? That's the central... Uh, purpose of God, that you might come into a personal relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit. And I pray that may be your experience today. So we have previously looked at the first sign of sonship in John chapter 1, which is, on, which is about acknowledging sin. A true Christian acknowledges sin. And in chapter 1 and verse 8, it says, and if we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. If we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. These are so definite, so clear, so sure, uh, and we need to be sure about where we stand before God. There ought to be no doubt. There ought to be no lack of confidence. Then secondly, 
and I think I brought this message to uh, Cornerstone here some months ago. Uh, the second point, loving your brother in 1 John 2 and verses 4 to 9. He that says, and note that recurring phrase, he that says, he's giving lip service. His lips are, are saying one thing, but his life is saying another. He that says, I know him, and does not continue to keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Again, he that says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even until now. And that's the condition of those who are outside of Christ. And today we look at the third sign of sonship, love not the world. Love not the world. This is in contrast to loving your brother. Now he's saying love not the world. And we'll have a look at what that means in a moment. So three points I want to bring to you this morning. First is the the object of this command, who and what is he saying we should not love? Then secondly, we're looking at the objective of the command, how we are not to love the world. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the motive of the command, why we are not to love the world. And I pray that God might bless this uh, to your heart this morning. Some time ago, some 20 years or more, when I was a boy, uh, we were living in Sydney and my wife and I built a house adjoining our parents' place in Sydney, southwest. And over time, and as a Christian, I, built this, I, I filled this house with all sorts of things that glitter and glow and, and got the best of everything. And I particularly spent a lot of time and money building a sound system, as men do. We've just got to have loud music. I don't know why, but it's just a thing. And so I'd spent all this money and time getting all this equipment together and setting it all up and it sounded wonderful and it sounded so loud that one night my parents, when I was playing one of Arnold Schwarzenegger's movies, where we destroyed the world, uh, my parents came running out of the house thinking we were under attack. The whole house was shaking with the subwoofers, you know, from heaven. And um, anyway, so one day, this particular day, um, I'd left for work around about 9 or 10 in the morning, and uh, my wife, Dawn, she had uh, gone off to the shops, and strangely enough, my mother, who never left the home, decided she would go out and, and visit someone that day. Anyway, I got back to the house about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and, and I noticed the door was a little bit loose and opened up, and nothing's there. I rang Dawn. Dawn, have you moved everything? And she goes, oh, I, I, might, I might have moved a table around, or I might have done this and moved the carpet here or there. I said, no, no. Everything. The house is empty. And while we were gone, thieves had backed the truck up to the house and emptied the entire house. Lock, stock and barrel. How they got all the furniture out in four hours or so when we were away, I've no idea. But the house was absolutely, literally empty. At that time, uh, my, my, my mother outlaw, my mother-in-law, she was living with us at the time and she'd been through a bit of divorce and, and in the divorce she'd lost everything except her jewellery and the, th- the thieves took her jewellery. And, uh, and so and things weren't going that well in business, so we didn't have insurance, just to make it worse. Anyway, after a long time of uh, thinking about these things, I realised that you know, perhaps I was holding those things just a little bit too tight. And God had, you know, where robbers break through and steal. Build up your treasures not on earth, but in heaven, where moth and rust do not corrupt and robber does not break through and steal. And so I learnt that lesson. Now, recently, I bought another stereo, and it doesn't work. <laughs> so I'm getting the message finally, finally getting through. And so um, 
We're not to love the world. So the object of the command here, a first point, is that um, he's commanding us not to love the world. Now, what is the world? The word, the Greek word here is the word cosmos, and cosmos has a very general meaning, and often in the Greek it's the context of the passage that gives you the meaning. Now, in John chapter 17, which is the true Lord's Prayer, when it's called the high priestly prayer of Christ, where he's addressing his father before his passion, before he would go and die on the cross, and he addresses his father. And in that particular uh, passage of scripture, and I suggest you go home and read that entire prayer, because I'm just going to take a little snippet out of it. Um, but he says there very clearly, he says this very strange thing. He says, I pray not for the world, but I pray for them that you have given me out of the world. And there he's saying that the world are the worldlings as compared to his elect, his, his true chosen people who are his, his saints, his people. He says, I pray not for the world, but I pray for them that you have given me out of the world. They are mine and they are yours, he says. And just very quickly to give you the eternal purposes of God in about two seconds, God the Father gave in eternity past before uh, in Ephesians the word, the throwing down of the universe, the, the Greek word is katavalis, the throwing down of the universe. Before the throwing down of the universe, God the Father gave God the Son the names of those for whom he would die. They're written in a book, sealed in eternity. They can't change, they can't be added to, they can't be taken from. You, if you have trusted in Christ, are those elect. Those who will trust in Christ will be, that will be shown to be, proved to be the elect of God. So God gave Christ those names and in the fullness of time Christ came, born of a virgin, born under the law, to redeem those who were bound under the law, condemned by the law, to redeem them by his precious blood. Christ came and died for them and paid the purchase price. He paid all that's needed to complete your salvation and to make your heaven absolutely certain and sure. So when Christ died, he didn't make it he didn't die to make it possible for everyone to be saved. He made it certain for his people to be saved. Absolutely, certainly. He said, I, of all the sheep you've given me, I have lost not one. None of them has lost. They hear my voice and they come. And uh, as you have, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, responded to that glorious call of his precious uh, gospel, and so John says, the world here are the worldlings. You are not to love, and the Greek word there for love is that root word agape, which he used when he said we are not, we are, uh, not to hate our brother, but we're to love our brother. We're to love him, how? Sacrificially. We're to love our brother sacrificially. We're to, if he's in need, give him the goods he needs, uh, and, and so on, and uh, show him mercy, Forgiveness, as we preached in the last message, and, and gifts. And so the people of God, uh, and so the, sorry, and so he's writing to, he says the world is the worldling, the worldling. And we see this very clearly in verse uh, 16, which is a definition of the worldling, if you like. He says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not out of a source of the Father, but is out of a source of the world. So here's a definition of those who are outside of Christ. And he says, again, with absolute certainty, and, and it's very complete, 
All that is in the world are these three things. Now, John Bunyan, in his book, The Pilgrim's Progress, he calls these three, three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He calls them the three daughters of Adam the first. The three daughters of Adam the first. And in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6 we read, The woman saw that the tree was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. And their eyes were opened and they knew that they were, they were naked. And the first words of God to sinful man were, Adam, where are you? And God would say those same things to you today. If you're here and you're, out and you, you're not a believer, you haven't trusted in Christ at this point, God would say to you today, Adam, where are you? Do you know where you are? Do you know where you stand? Do you know where this fall has taken you and where you now are positioned? And in Ephesians chapter 2, if you like, that is the, the nature of, of the worldling, consumed by the lust of the flesh, the lust of life, with no grace in them. Grace is a gift. Grace is from God. If you're outside of Christ, you have no grace. You have a semblance of grace. You might be a, a nice person to be around, but you have no grace before him. He sees you differently to how we see you. He sees the heart. He sees the mind. He reads the motives. He says in Revelation, I know your works. I have an epinosis, a full knowledge of what you do. I know when you're being faithful to me. I know when you're not being faithful to me. I know when you're doing things that are wrong and contrary to my word. I know absolutely everything. Nothing is hidden from my sight. Nothing. You're an open book. In uh, Hebrews, again, 4 and verse 12, it says there that, that we're like an offering, slate open. And the word of God is a discerner in thoughts and of the, sorry, is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our hearts, separating between soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intents of our heart. We are open and naked before him with whom we have to do. His eye is the eye of a burning fire that sees through all the veneer that we put out to others. You might be sitting today in fine clothes and looking and smelling well, but God knows your heart. God knows whether there's inside dead men's bones. He knows whether you're alive. He knows whether you're uh, walking in fellowship with him or out of fellowship with him. You may fool us, but you can't fool God. We, we cannot fool God. So that's the nature of the worldling. is only lust, flesh, eyes, and pride, the pride of life. And secondly, their condition, the condition of the worldling, worldling we find in Ephesians chapter 2. And I'll just read this passage to you. In Ephesians 2 it says, And you, has he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Now Adam and Eve, Adam was the, the only man that became a sinner by sinning. We become sinners by nature. We're born into this world with a nature which is contrary to God. We need to be born again. We must be born again. We have not his spirit. We have no grace. We cannot stand before him and before his holiness without that grace in our hearts. And he says the condition of man here in Ephesians 2, and this is your condition if you're outside of Christ and you're not a believer today, is that you are dead. That means you have no life. Now, you might not smell dead. You might not look dead, though. Some of you look a little bit iffy. <laughs> but you are dead. God declares it. 
you are dead. This is your spiritual condition. Wherefore, in time past, speaking to us, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. What hope have they got? What hope has an unbeliever got in the world without Christ, without God, without his spirit? Unless God does the work, we cannot do anything. As a parent, and uh, most of my children are converted, as a parent, you know that there is nothing you can do to save your children. You can live a great life and you can preach them regularly and you can demonstrate the love of Christ before them, but God still must work a work of grace in their hearts and in your heart. He must do the work. Without his work, no one would be saved. But we know, of course, he's purposed to work his grace in amongst his people. Among whom we also had our, how our conduct in time past, in the lust of our flesh, this is before we were converted, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. But God, and what a wonderful word, but, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ, by grace you are saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now this happened at the cross. This happened when he laid up his life. This happened when he rose from the dead. He rose with us effectively. And so our great high priest now sits in heaven and it's his life that secures our eternal life. While he lives, we live. And uh, that's the confidence that we have. He's alive. God raised him from the dead and with that same power he will raise us, our bodies, from the grave and he will redeem those dead bodies uh, at his coming and uh, it's a wonderful thing to look forward to. He's raised us up together. And then in verse 7, and this, I spent about a week thinking about this wonderful little phrase. That and one of the songs we sang uh, this morning spoke of this. He says, That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Jesus Christ. In other words, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll have no less days to sing his praise than when we first began. 10,000, 10 million, 10 trillion years, ages and ages and ages to come, we'll be with Christ and glorify him forever. You are having eternal life, life, the eternal life, John says. It's a wonderful thing. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You've done nothing to save yourself, and you can not do nothing to unsave yourself. It's God's work in you. And this is the confidence that we had before him. If it was up to us, if we had some hand in our salvation, we might well fear that we could fail and perhaps let go of his hand. But no, underneath us are the everlasting arms, they're immovable, they're all-powerful, they're all-knowing, and uh, they are divine. So we have, firstly, our, our nature, or sorry, the worldling's nature, fleshly, pride, and then the condition, dead in trespasses and things, and then, and then we have their things. We said we're told to love not the world, neither the things of the world. I just want to read a short passage in Timothy that speaks of this. It says in Timothy chapter 6 and verse, verse 
7, For we brought nothing into the world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. And uh, this afternoon I'll be preaching at the nursing home, at Regis Nursing Home, of course the Presbyterian uh, Nursing Home. And uh, made some good friends over there in the last couple of years. They're uh, a difficult congregation to preach to. Half of them are completely stone deaf. And the other half have got Alzheimer's. They just can't remember anything, and, uh, which may be a help for them. And uh, so it's a challenging ministry preaching to them. But we've had such wonderful times uh, ministering the word of God amongst them and seeing God do some wonderful things, uh, some wonderful things there. But it's absolutely certain we shall leave this world absolutely naked, absolutely empty of everything, no baggage, no stuff. It's all going to be gone. And we're going to go home to our lovely homes and no doubt they're full of, of wonderful things that we've gathered over the years. It's all going to be left behind. In fact, it says in Luke's Gospel, when Christ comes with the sound of a trumpet and the angels sound and all the elect are gathered from heaven to come with him in clouds in the air, it says two will be on the roof and it says to them, don't go down and get the stuff. You're not going to need that stuff there. You're going to heaven. You're going to be with Christ forever. The roads are laid with gold. The place is glorious, full of holy angels and beings beyond wonder. This is our life, the eternal life. And this is coming upon us quicker than we know. And he says, uh, so he says, sorry, and having food and raiment, therewith be content. And I was going to say of the, the, old, the old folks, uh, all of their lives are in their room. I went to Winston Churchill's room, I call him Winston Churchill, went to Winston's room, one of the, the residents there last time we were there, and his, his uh, room's full of posters of Mack trucks, he used to be a truckie in New South Wales. That's his entire complete life in that. Another old fellow by the name of David, he's 96 years of age, his boast is he doesn't need a stick to walk, he's a lovely gentleman, he doesn't know he's saved, he doesn't know he's going to heaven, I said to him, David, do you know that you are having eternal life? He said, Phil, I, I, I hope I do. I, hope. I said, you can know. You don't need to hope with uncertainty. You can know with absolute certainty, David. And David said to me that in his room, and I might have shared this before, tell me if I have, it's a sign of old age, um, but in his room he said, Phil, I've got a, I've, all my possessions are in one box. I've got a box of old model cars, from before the Second World War, when I travelled the world, everywhere I went, I bought a model car, and I said, my whole life is in that box. I thought, we're going to leave the stuff behind, folks, when God comes. We're going to leave it behind. So we ought to, the message is, we ought to hold it very loosely. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they've erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Is that your lot? Have you pierced yourself through with many sorrows, going after the things of this world? When Jonah was called to go to Nineveh and preach to Nineveh, that ungodly city, he, um, he didn't want to go. And uh, another feeling. And he didn't like the Ninevites. They're ungodly people, godless people. And God had said, go to Nineveh. And he said, no, I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm going somewhere else. He reached in his pocket. He found the fair... Uh, went down to Joppa and got on a boat heading towards Tarshish. Tarshish was a commercial centre. Tarshish, he could have a great ministry there. There are people lining up to hear his prophetic ministry. He has such a wonderful future there. So he gets on board the boat. And you know the rest of the story. A fish 
uh, swallows him and, and spews him up on the shores of Nineveh uh, to fulfill God's uh, command. And in the process, God saves the mariners, saves all those on board the ship uh, that was at sea with Jonah. Fight the good fight of faith, he says. Lay hold on eternal life. Have you got to hold on eternal life? If you're going to make a New Year's resolve uh, today or tomorrow, before the New Year begins, resolve this. Get a grip on eternal life. Think about eternal life. Before you know it, you're going to be there. In a flash, in a moment. This life will be over, this three score years and ten will be gone, and you'll be in eternity with Christ. Lay hold on eternal life. Get a grip on eternal life. Live for eternal life. Treasure up things in eternal life. Everything, your time, your talent, your treasure, everything needs to be uh, in accord with your eternal life. And so those are the things of the world. So that's the, the object of his command. And then we have the objective of his command. And in Proverbs 3 and verse 1, we read these verses here uh, not so long ago. It's, it begins there with this lovely word. He says, God speaking, of course, through Solomon, my son, my son. God would say to you today, my son. What wonderful words for God to condescend to us and call us his people, his sons and daughters in Christ. My son, forget not my law, but let your heart keep my commandments. Cynthia shared that. You can get the head engaged with his commandments. I know it all. I know love, not the world. I know John uh, chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. I, now having read it 5,000 times over the last three months, I can recite it, but I won't show off, unlike me. But he says, my son, forget not my law, but let your heart keep my commandments. So the love of the Father is an exclusive love. It's an exclusive love. We, hear in, uh, we read in Exodus chapter 20 in the giving of the law, in the very first command, he says there, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Have you got gods before Christ? Have you got the world before Christ? You shall not replicate them, he says. You shall not bow down before them, surrender yourself to them. You shall not serve them. Are you serving the world? Are you serving the world through your career and through your, your attainments, through your, your goals? Is it just the flesh? Is it just the eyes? Is it the pride of life that you're serving? If God be God, then serve him. If Baal be God... Baal represents Satan. If Baal be God, serve him. But if God be God, serve him. Serve him with all that you are. And in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, by way of practical application, he says there, God speaking again, remember Paul writing to the Corinthian church, but it's God speaking. He says, be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. Christ said, I pray not for the world, but for them you've given me out of the world. You're not to love the worldling. You're to love the brethren. Not to love the worldling sacrificially and sacrifice for the world what you should be giving to the brethren, to those who are Christ's. There ought to be a distinction. There ought to be a clear distinction. And when you make that choice, whether it's marrying someone or whether it's a business deal or some sort of other relationship, you're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. This is the will of God. So if you are in a relationship with an unconverted person, 
and you have a choice, then you know, you know the will of God. He says you are not to be yoked together unequally. I am the Lord, he says in uh, 1 Corinthians, sorry, 2 Corinthians. He says, uh, wherefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I'll receive you. I will be a father unto you. You shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. That's in uh, the context of be not unequally yoked uh, with unbelievers. So the love of God is exclusive. God wants our hearts. And we find in uh, James chapter 4 and verses 1 to 10, we find such a common thing, and it took me some weeks of reading this before I actually applied it to myself and thought, you know what, this conflict here in James chapter 4 is the conflict I go through every day. It's the allurement of, it's the, allurement of the world. He said, from whence comes, from when does come wars and fightings among you? Come they not here even of your lusts that war in your members? You lust and you have not. You kill, in other words, murder each other. You hate each other and desire to have, probably what they have, and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. You don't ask. You're worldly-minded. You're a Christian now. We, well, we think he's speak, speaking to Christians. You're worldly-minded, but you are a Christian. You don't ask. How's, how's your prayer life going? Are you asking regularly for God? Are you watching regularly for, for his answers? It might be a sign that you're a worldly Christian. You ask, he says, when you do ask, and you receive not, because you ask, the Greek word means badly, amiss. You ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. You adulterers and adulteresses. You can imagine Campbell getting up here uh, and addressing you on one Sunday morning and saying, you adulteresses and adulteresses. He wouldn't stay long in the ministry, would he? James was such a, a blunt man, you've got to love him for that. He calls a spade a spade. And if you are flirting with the world, if you're flirting with the world and relationships with the world and compromising Christ, sacrificing your love for him for a love for the world, then you're right here. You're an adulterer. You're an adulteress. Know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Now there's no contradiction here. Uh, if God is your saviour, he's not your enemy. But here he's saying, if you love the world, you're making him your enemy. He doesn't make you his enemy. He loves you in Christ. He can do nothing else but love you in Christ. But you make him his enemy. You stir up him. And what's he say? Do you think the scripture says in vain, the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy? Now here he's using carnal language for carnal Christians. He's speaking their lingo. He's saying, you know all about lust, you know all about envy. He says, do you know what the Spirit is like that? He's jealous for your affections. He wants your love. He's jealous. He says in, a, in the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, he says, let me hear your voice, let me see your face, for your voice is sweet and your face is comely, says the Lord. Take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. The foxes are the sins that nip away at all the fruit in our lives. 
God wants our affection. He wants, he wants our attention. He wants everything. He wants our will. He wants everything that we have. He lusts to envy. And look at verse 6. And look, I'm standing by this. You, you put a circle around it. You have a pen in your hand. At chapter 4 and verse 6. But he gives more grace, wherefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. What a wonderful thing. In our worldliness, in our unfaithfulness towards God, he says he gives more grace. In Romans it says, he asks the question, should we sin that grace abounds? No, no, no. But when we sin, grace abounds all the more. What a wonderful thing. What a wonderful encouragement. What a wonderful consolation in Christ. Nothing will take us from the Father's hand for there are none greater than him. Are you in the Father's hand? He gives, and the, the Greek is the present continuous tense, he continues to give more grace. Wherefore he says, God resists the proud. From Proverbs 3 and verse 34, he says, he resists the scorner, he scorns the scorner, in Proverbs 3 where this is quoted from, but gives grace unto the humble. So if you're in Christ and you are sinning against him, and your, your affections have been drawn away with the glitter of this world. He adds more grace, more grace. None can pluck you uh, from his hand. What a wonderful, wonderful thing. So what are we to do? Well, I think it's very clear here, and it's set out a number of points. He says, firstly, submit yourself, therefore, to God. If you're here today and you feel like you have, you're a, you're a, if you feel like you're far from God, guess who moved? You've seen the old 1960s shows where they used to have no seatbelts and a bench seat in the car and the couple, when they're first going out, she's sitting right up close to him as he's driving and then when they're married, she's right over on the other side and then three years later with the kids, she's in the trailer and he's up front. <laughs> if you feel far away from God, guess who moved? God did not move, you moved. You were drawn away of your lust. You were drawn away of your desires. You were lifted up with pride and there's only one way forward. You are uh, to surrender. God is calling us to surrender ourselves to him. Submit yourselves therefore to God. You are to bow. You are to bow your knee. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 and 2, it says there, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your reasonable service. And be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be not conformed to the world, sorry. Be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You might prove, you might demonstrate, you might try that perfect, acceptable will of God. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. How do we do that? There's only one way, and that's to read the word of God, to let it permeate, to marinate ourselves in daily in the scriptures it's the only way submit yourselves to god bow and then resist the, the, the devil stand stand firm and if you stand firm against the devil and his temptations he will flee from you he's afraid of this holy spirit within you greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world he will flee from you and then draw near to god step forward draw near to god and he will draw near to you that's the certainty that's the promise if you respond today and you surrender yourself to God, no matter how proud you've been, 
no matter what, what ungodly life you've been living. It matters not. He will draw near to you if you humble yourselves. He will supply the grace needed. He will draw you to himself and cleanse. And he says then, cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. In other words, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and material gain. Otherwise, you will love the one and hate the other. See, it's about relationship. Christianity is about a relationship between you and your God. And if you don't know him, I suggest you cry out to him that he might save you and bring you into that glorious relationship in Christ. Accept his son and believe on him. That's the objective of the command. The objective is an exclusive love for him. He's a jealous God. He's jealous for our affections. He's jealous for our time. He wants to see our face. He wants to hear our voice. He wants to hear from you. Will you call upon him? And then thirdly, we have the motive of the command in verse 17. And it starts with, first of all, uh, it starts with, first of all, the world passes away and the lust thereof. So it's temporal. The world is temporal. And by contrast, he that does the will of God continues to abide forever. And in 1 John 2 and verse 25, he says again, and this is the promise that he's promised us, even life, the eternal life. And chapter 5 and verse 11, and this is the record that God has given us, eternal life. This life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who has not the Son has not life. There's an old saying that says, no Christ, you know, no Christ, no life. No Christ, K-N-O-W, no life. Know it, experience it, love it, enjoy it forever. And I pray that this morning that'll be your experience, that God will draw you to himself. And obviously there is so much to be confident about, so much to engage us and so much of uh, God's glory for us to draw near to. I pray that God might bless his word to your hearts this morning. We'll just have a word of prayer. Oh, Father, I thank you and bless you for your loving kindness and your grace towards us, Lord, when we fail so miserably so often. You are still there. You don't change. Even if we deny ourselves, you do not deny yourself. Even if we deny you, Lord, you do not deny yourself. We thank you for this uh, wonderful truth and these truths of your word and pray you'll forgive us. Forgive us for our worldliness. Forgive us for our desires for these temporal things that are passing away and help us to embrace and lay hold on life, the eternal life. Help us, Lord, to live for it. Help us to resolve every day that we will walk in a way well-pleasing in your sight. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.